Storytime 126, Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins coming to you from Ahmedabad where we have a, a brief moment to ourselves around the test match. We're in the commentary box, which is why it will probably sound echoey and a bit weird, but it's 40 degrees outside. So that was not an option. Unlike the evening show that we recorded out of doors last weekend, that came out last weekend, where we had seven different people contributing to Storytime, including all four of the people who've hosted it more than once. <laughs> yeah, I, I did say to Daniel just before, oh, I'll bet to do a Storytime, you know, get it in the can before the test match, it'll be out on the weekend, etc. He's like, another one, another one, you just did one. I'm like, yes, that's how it works. Mm-hmm. We're on a rhythm. We try and do 50 a year if everything's going well. Yep. Um, 126, yeah, I think 125 will be a memorable one. It's not a milestone that we acknowledge on the final word, um, (laughs) even if the England Test team do. But, yes, it's not one that we'll forget in a hurry with, as you say, all the various co-hosts being there and the the beer being thrown across the room and caught by Louis, which didn't look as good on camera. I agree with you, but it still looked pretty bloody good in terms of his reflexes. It felt faster at the time. It definitely felt more... Significant at the time yes. than, than it ended up being on the historical <laughs> record, but that's often the case, you know. I mean, I'm sure you're, I'm sure there'd be say things in Hansard that, that like one-liners that wouldn't sound so good when you read them back ten years later. But that, at the time, you thought they were the pinnacle. That's absolutely it. You know, you, you tell a joke back from Question Time because the bar is mm. kind of low, and that's partly the fault of Peter Costello, who was effectively a stand-up comedian mm-hmm. who masqueraded as federal treasurer from time to time. He was extremely good at that. My chief of staff once said to me, yeah, opposition, it was pretty hard. You know, whatever John Howard's office had given to the Oz that morning would be question one, Dixa one, Dixa two, the Nationals leader, whoever it was at the time, Deputy Prime Minister, would get up and speak for four minutes about whatever was suiting their constituency. Mm-hmm. Question three, absolute smash-up from Costello, and on we went, every day for ten years. <laughs> Speaking of politics, it's going to be a very political week here so yeah. um, I'm sure a lot of people who'll be in the halls here at Underbud will remember those days and other days of um, question time and yes the bar because of that as I was trying to explain is high for good jokes and, and thus when you clear it you end up quite happy for yourself. Mm, I see all right well we had a good suggestion in from a correspondent Lee Couchman which sort of fitted given we were talking about the WNCL final the women's domestic 50 over final the other week. Lee says this Fran Drescher's character on The Nanny was, of course, Fran Fine, as mm. we know. Instead of the WNCL, could we change the name to the Fine Cup <laughs> so that it more appropriately matches up with the Mr Sheffield Shield? What was she to do? Where was she to go? She was out on her fanny. And over the bridge from Flushing to the Sheffield's door, yep. she was there to sell makeup, but the father saw more. Mm. She had style, she had flair, she was there. That's how she became the nanny. Doesn't, doesn't really fit under modern um, IR employment. <laughs> no, in that's quite right. The same way, style, flair, there, yeah, job. You're in. You're, you're in. in. Um, there to sell makeup, but uh, you're going to get hired for a different position <laughs> entirely. Well, we ended up, you know, mm. love well, you and took it back as you watched the episode. Well, yeah, mm. of course. I mean, the, I love the, the fact that our UK audience have no idea. I've what never we're seen talking. it. It's never really played out properly on British television. Whereas it was a, a smash hit in America and Australia. Yep. It just kind of, I don't know why. Yep. Maybe the commercial, maybe ITV never bought it or something like mm-hmm. that. And it's like 
the Hansard, the joke in Hansard. It, it's you can't really enjoy it retrospectively. It's not the same. If if you went back and watched it now for the first time, you'd probably just find it obnoxious. But at the time, it was a social phenomenon and, and a smash yeah. hit, and we can't explain why. But it is, and so retrospectively, we think it's better than it was. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we could remember you, that 1995. We are the primary school kids. Yeah. Yeah, and so there's you, not you a lot think, going on in Australia. Well, that's right. You've got four television stations. But who would have guessed that the girl we described was just exactly what the doctor described? Prescribed. Prescribed, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely prescribed. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, doctors Des- doctor describe, describe things. things. They prescribe things. They do describe things. Her father finds like beguiling. Watch out, see, see. The kids are actually smiling. Such joy Such de vivre. joie de vivre. <laughs> well, yeah. We, I mean, we have broken this song apart on the show before, but here we are. Here we are. Look. Uh, um, killing time. I'm procrastinating, Jeff. You are, before we get on with the show at hand. And the way we do that, Adam, is via a game called Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge is a game that we play with all the lovely people on the internet who fund this program. They are the faceless backers behind this show, <laughs> and they do it by sending in amounts of money that are not specific normal amounts you would expect to find on a coin or a note. They're amounts that relate to cricket in some way. Why are these commentary boxes so echoey? I don't know. Why would you build a commentary box which is specifically for talking in and then make it a bad place to talk? It's the worst place in the ground to commentate from is usually because of the acoustics, the commentary boxes that we're getting at the moment. Yep. I don't understand. Mm. Has nobody told them? Well, yeah, yeah, don't build an entire commentary box out of glass. <laughs> I mean, that's a suggestion I might have made for an earlier venue. Nonetheless, we will deal with the reverb um, and we'll lean into it. We'll, we'll make it Phil Spector style. You know, we'll, we'll just ramp it up. We'll, Celine Dion. We'll make, it, we'll make a virtue of it. So here's the deal. We get a number and it relates to cricket, and we have to guess what it means. And normally it's not a flat dollar figure, but in this case, just to be difficult, it is a flat dollar figure. It is $3 Australian flat, which means the number is 300. And the sender is Matt near the Gabba, who I had the pleasure of finally meeting in person during our Brisbane meet-up, and who has been cooking some delicious pizzas and posting them on Instagram. I've seen this. I I feel really bad about not... Being able to stay because obviously the meetup it was a two day test match. The meetup was night three. I couldn't not go home to my family given given the opportunity. So I I missed the chance to meet Matt, but mm. we'll make amends because uh, we now have a vague idea of the schedule. Yeah. Brisbane's going to be the fifth test of the summer yes. to round it out. It will, which means there might be time afterwards. Which means I think. Matt, I think I'm inviting everybody over to your place, Matt, for a pizza party. You don't know this, but I'm just going to spring this on you. I think we're going to have a final word pizza party at Matt's joint. I like it. In Brisbane in January. Anyway, the number is 300. And Matt says this, my new pledge relates to my first day of international cricket and I can't wait to tell you my stories, which I think is a clever reference to our theme song. Um, stories by Earthboy. Who, yes. Who's doing his last ever headline tour in I the saw next this. few weeks. I he's, saw this. So he's he's um, hanging it. up the sneakers. I, I assume keeping the record label going. Yeah, so he, well, he's still very busy at the label at Elephant Tracks and he will play shows, but I think he said that in terms of doing a full national, he's the main act going town to town. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's... he's, he's into his 50s now he's he's a has had a long long career on the yep. road um and you know he's got a young family as well and he's just decided i think that he can't keep doing stuff like this all the time one so. of the first times we filmed an interview was with the man who goes by the title earth boy that, mm. that was in the january of 2019 just when patreon was starting actually mm. and i reckon that whole thing's on youtube somewhere so if you want to maybe and if it's not there's at least and you know i think i think it is 
I reckon it is. Or you can go back in the feed and listen to the podcast. Either way, it's when we kind of realised that we should put the foot down on the interview bit. Yeah. And as we have ever after. So Matt near the Gabba. It's not the first time that I'm going to be dealing with a double zero with a snake eyes at the end of the okay. digit today. Now, I had to apply a bit snake of logic. Eyes. That's a, they use that in craps, don't they, as I well? So. Yeah, or double zero snake eyes, right? Mm. So that's a, mm. might be your roulette thing from back in the day. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's that. I mean, the double zero is what the Americans brought in to put on the roulette table just to screw people even further. They're like, <laughs> the house has the edge because you've got 37 numbers, you pay yeah. 35 to one. So yeah. there's, there's that edge of... 2.8%, I think. But then you bring in the double zero and just double your advantage. If you're the house, why not? I guess that's their prerogative. Not that I like it. Um, yeah, this involves sort of guessing Matt's age a little bit. Now, I've seen a lot of photographs of Matt on the Discord page. Mm-hmm. I have spoken to Matt on email a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like he is about our age. Yeah. I mean, you're 18 months or two years older than me or something. He might fall between us. Could be. That. Could anyway. I'm 38, so I'm, I'm going to use that as a starting point. I hope I haven't offended him by saying that. He might be 32 and just a very distinguished-looking 32. Who's to know? Who's to know? No, I, to I, know? Just, I just get the sense culturally that Yeah, that's it. He's yeah. of an era with us. Yeah, I, I share that view. So my, I used my own first date at an international cricket game to, to, to benchmark it, if you okay. like. I went to Boxing Day, One Day International against Sri Lanka in 1989. My mm. uncle Craig, or Uncle Tuppy, took me along. We parked at Government did, House. Did you make you leave early? We did. You did? We did leave early. I was going to say this at the end, but I'll say it now. Um, the game in question, Dino made 85 not out from 89 balls. I remember watching that and getting home. You know, I would have been a four-year-old in the... No, maybe I've turned five by that point. Any, either way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, no. January 89, it would have been... would have been No, December 89. I would have been five. Either way... An entire one-day international is probably not happening for a five-year-old sure. lad, however enthusiastic. But then Simon O'Donnell took forfa after Dino took 85 not out from 89 balls off the Sri Lankans. Very happy young Victorian boy I was, mm. that much I recall. Okay. So I wonder whether in the same tri-series in February 1990, so two months on, Matt may have gone to the Gabba to watch the Pakistan-Australia fixture. Yeah. It, it kind of lines up. Kind of lines up. And, and the reason why I think that might work, possibly, is it's an even 300 made by the Australians. Um, no centuries, but everyone, everyone got in on it. Tubby made 68 from 88, laid the foundation with big Tom Moody, 89 from 82 with four sixes for Tom Moody opening the batting. I'm not sure whether Moody ever made a, a, a one-day international 100. Can't remember that. But mm. he did play, of course, in, in two World Cup winning sides in the squad in 87 and in the team in, in 99. So they laid a base of 154 and then Dino came in and got run out for 32. I remember in that summer, as a, again as a kid, Dino getting run out and stumped was a bit of an ongoing theme. There were sort of parodies of Jones's running, going, yes, no, wait, sorry, and, and so on. But I wasn't surprised to see that he was caught short for 32. AB 26, Simon O'Donnell again. 31 from 28, Ian Healy, 22 not out from 20 balls at the end. So kind of the perfect one-day innings of its time. 300 was exceptional in early 1990. And that was against Wazim Akram and Imran Khan. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's a serious innings. No one-day hundreds for Tom Moody. Um, his high score? His high score was 89. Here it is. This was, his, this was Tom Moody's high score. Tom Moody's greatest day. But, you know, the work he went on to as an international financial ratings agency was <laughs> exceptional. And you've got to say that in many ways that was his highest score. Yeah, I, I remember the day. When he threatened to downgrade America's credit rating. Yeah, I remember the day that Australia's credit rating from the third agency, I think it was Moody's. 
I'll be stand. I'll stand to be corrected here. Went triple A, so he got the three A's from. Well, technically speaking, one of them gives you a double A plus, but it was effectively triple mm. A rated across the three major credit rating agencies. And we put out this like proud infographic. You know, part of the nine A's club, Australia. Welcome. <laughs> um, we thought it was good. Where are we? So nineteen ninety. In response, Pakistan made two thirty three. Big Carl Rackerman took four for forty four, which you know to me. That feels like a significant thing that, mm. you know, um, Rackerman was the... In my early cricketing consciousness, he was the leader of the attack, even though it doesn't quite marry up with reality. It's kind of like... Because that's the summer I start watching right. and he was the opening bowler. That's how I fell for <laughs> leader of the attack. Exactly. So Alderman, Hughes, O'Donnell also taking a wicket. They win by 67 runs. But I also thought... And I'm not going to do too much on this, Jeff, because um, you have already done this game. It could easily be the uh, South Africa, New Zealand classic... At the Jabba in 1998, so that means that Matt didn't go till he was a you know well into his teens. A big, big, uh, big day on Nash. Big day on Nash. And the reason I just wanted to touch on that is that Gary Kirsten made a hundred. Mm. We had him on the show the other week. We barely mentioned yep. the fact that he averaged forty and a bit, made thirteen one day hundreds at a strike rate of seventy two, which was perfectly acceptable as an opener back then, and had the world record of 188 for a time, which was mm. secured at the '96 World Cup. And he kind of talks himself down as this crabby batsman with not a lot of shots. Well, you know, the numbers tell a, a different story. But, yeah, that was a, a, a real a, a game of its era. Yeah, Hansi Cronier, Pat Simcox. Um, oh, here's one. Trivia question. Well, not trivia. More for you. Who do you think opened the batting with Gary Kirsten that day? In who opened the batting? Just have a guess. I mean, Gary you're not going to get it right. It's kind of my point. So no, as in it wasn't Herschel Gibbs. It wasn't Herschel Gibbs who was down the list. It, it was Lance Klusner opening the oh. batting. Made a... Not a particularly fast half century, but was influential in the final analysis because, yes. as we know, there's the comeback from Chris Cairns. He, he took gets the five sixes. He's Adam Perore. Cairns gets run out by Gary Kirsten at short third right. um, to change the game for another twist after Alan Donald took a bunch of wickets at the start to reduce them to sort of like five for 100 or something mm. like that. They're never chasing 300. But 12 needed from the final over. Mm. Sean Pollock bowling. Daniel Vittori faces the first couple of balls. They mm-hmm. get through for a bye. They get Nash back on strike mm-hmm. and then and then plays this ostentatious... Would you call it a lap? Yeah, he, he played, probably would. He plays Crossy almost a, a paddle sweep. Paddle sweep, it's yeah. A, it's, it's, a, it's a proto-genitor. It's a prototypical yeah. scoop. I think that's it. Yeah. Before Ryan Campbell went the whole way down. Yeah. It's kind of just before that. It's more of the angle. It's not over the keeper's head. It's more over fine leg. Yeah. Over his left shoulder. Almost over long leg. It's almost squarer. And for the second time in his career, smoked the rope. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. So hits the rope. The Tony Gregg commentary is just brilliant. I'll bring it up here. He goes, um, oh, that's gone away for four. That's six. Oh, boy. It's hit the line. I can't believe it. The ball lands as they show. It's between the ropes. And, you know, Tony Gregg gives it everything. And. And so it is. And in the last ball, you know, so that's given a four after they go through the technology, limited as it was at the time. Fair to say it was inconclusive, but, you know, those two ropes running next to each other made it all the more complicated. Last ball, he plays a very similar shot, but in front of square. It's like a slog sweep Mm. before Steve Waugh was playing that shot Mm. and racing around at full pelt is Lance Klusner, yes. who needed to take the catch because i tell you what, they absolutely would have got three on the arm given the, the wide expanses wide expanses, wide expanses of yep. the Gabba. Had it hit the deck, they would have at least tied it 300 apiece. Probably would have got through for yep. the, the cheeky third given they would have been sprinting like Carl Lewis. And, and if he doesn't catch it, it's probably ricocheting away. Exactly. It's probably hitting the body, his body blocking it and then having to retrieve it from the ground and all that. Exactly. So New Zealand lose by a couple of runs. They don't reach 300, which was the score that South Africa made. And one of those two games, 1990, Australia against Pakistan, or 
98, the January of 98, South Africa against New Zealand. It'll be one of those two. Now, I know you've done the Dion Nash game before, mm. but just with the sequencing, with when the pledges come in and Matt's a, a re-upper, I, I reckon this might mm. have been in the queue before you told I the story. I think it might have come in before Dion Nash right, came yeah. in. Yeah, um, because, I mean, Dion Nash is getting... It was quite maybe it was nine months ago, uh, but some of the yeah some some of the re up clues have been taking a while. We are starting to catch up on it again, we are, but yeah. uh, but there's work to do. There's work ahead of us to try to whittle down that waiting time. Very good. All right, I like it. I'm going to accept that answer. And Bunker. next we have Uzer Khan, oh. who is someone else who we have met because he took us out to dinner in Lahore. When we were in Pakistan last year, very, very, very pleasant dinner. It was the, um, the the sushi restaurant, wasn't it? The Japanese yeah. restaurant there in Lahore, which That's everyone right. talked up and who was there um, gave us a, a lovely Lahori experience, which I can't believe it's a year since we were in Ralpindia. I'm getting the memories up on Instagram and, and all the rest of it from 12 months ago. And not only the, I guess, that week, but the whole trip. Like the, to think that, you know, 15 days of hard slog, which we loved, but very different kind of series here in India mm. where these matches are racing to the finish line and then yeah. we're getting these different kind of days to see the country. We've spent all of our time here not covering Test cricket yeah. and then, yeah. ha- you know, coming up with other things to do, to, to write <laughs> and to record and so on. So the number is $3.60 and it comes with a clue. It does. It relates to your last weekly show theme at the time of writing and the score of a particular Aussie player at an interesting point in their innings. I hope they make a comeback soon. Their style reminds me of an obvious giant of the game. Don't overthink it. Right. So this, the weekly show before this pledge came in, was the show in which I, Jeff Lemon, told you, Adam Collins, about the miracles of the human digestive system. Ah, uh, and when I right. explained to you the biomedical science behind the phenomenon that when you have diarrhoea, the external area of your rectum begins to hurt. And I was like, why does this happen? And I found, I'd, I'd previously in my life found out from a doctor why this happened just out of, because I was curious. And I relayed it to you at a time when you were quite ill and you did not take it very well. <laughs> Yeah, well, put it this way. At time of recording, I, I, I'm not eating anymore. I may never eat again. Uh, so I'm not going to recap the glory of that phenomenon now, but if you, if you, if you want to know more and you're listening to this show without having heard that one, I believe the episode is called The Many Marvels of Digestion, and I believe you can find it in the feed, and I think it is a truly compelling, if not thrilling, medical fact once you start to work it out so there is a lot more going on in your body than you know about this Mm. this is the the basic you know the cliff notes here is that your body is an incredibly complex organism it is as John Mayer suggested, a wonderland, um, but also a terrifying wonderland. Uzair uh, has a um, medicine in the family as well. His brother's been the team doctor at a number of AFL clubs and, right. and works with the Aussie cricket team from time to time. Yes. And he has a, a life in Australia, spending time back in Pakistan yep. and so on. So, so that was the context in which, uh, in which he sent through this clue for this pledge. And the number is $3.60, which means I think we're talking about 36 because it just so happens to be 36 that Matthew Renshaw was on in 2017 when he fled the field ah. during the first test match in India. Documented uh, wonderfully on the Final Word Cricket Podcast. Yes. You might have heard of it. Yeah. Another interview in 2019. Another interview that we did where he described in, in very frank detail, I applauded his <laughs> honesty at the time, um, what was going on that day and how he dealt with 
the consequences. Sprinting off the field, slipping over on the tiles of the bathroom because he was wearing spikes, trying to get his strides off while not having the shoes off properly and um, trying to get everything clear before everything went disastrously wrong. And then, you know, fair play to him, coming back and resuming his innings mm. later on and, and ending up making a substantial score I think as well. he made well. 70 or something like that? Yeah, 60-something, 70-something. 60 60 and he came in and did the presser that night in Pune mm. and had to tell the story kind of the first time mm. and we all wrote about it, of course. And then, yep. you know, subsequently, every interview he's done, yeah, around that first stage of his career he had to go through it again and again and again and all those remember the Australians were saying Alan Border possibly said oh you know if you just tough it out he's like well what does he expect me to actually yeah. do does he want me to shit myself <laughs> yeah. on the field is that, <laughs> that is literally is that the only about? thing that was going to happen yeah. you've got to play with a hard edge and that includes shitting yourself <laughs> like that includes you're wearing whites that includes very visibly soiling yourself with liquid shit that will soak through those clothes be extremely evident to everybody looking on i mean maybe nappy sand isn't getting that out no it'll put we've up got some clothes from winnie and now peggy where it's you yeah. know it's just too far gone right yeah it's it's like the the bizarro universe version of holy here where they throw the dye yes. on you and it stains those clothes forever and you might have a good memory from that ah this is my shirt from that time that, that got ruined by fluorescent pink dye very different to this is the baby suit that got so irreversibly shat on <laughs> well, that it can never be unshat well here's the thing right so you know curtain up all the rest you're wearing your elephant tracks t-shirt at the moment which i've seen you wear Possibly hundreds of times in our friendship. I have several of them. Oh, you have several mm. of them. Like that old adage, if, if you find something you like, buy it lots of times. Yeah. Okay, well, it won't matter if that shirt gets ruined when yeah. we go out into the streets and do holy later. I'm, by planning, wearing a shirt that I don't like very much. Mm. I'm, I'm relaxed good. about it being yep. trashed. Cool. It doesn't fit very nicely. Right. So um, if it goes the way of Elise Perry's hair, she was on Instagram yesterday saying, I've washed my hair twice. Uh, nothing's coming out. Do I have to live this way forever? Um, <laughs> and this shirt goes that way, like Elise Perry's <laughs> locks, and so be it. Uh, so, so 36 is what he's on when he retires her, mm -hmm. or retires indisposed, and then comes back and, and carries on. And uh, so Uzer said that he hopes that this player makes a comeback. Well, unfortunately, in the time... Since, that has elapsed since sending this through. He has made a comeback yeah. and he's also made an exit again. He's been dropped twice despite mm. only missing one test because he was dropped for Delhi. Well, you know, juggled out of the side for Delhi. Mm. They brought Head back. He ended up becoming a concussion substitute in that game. Failed when he got his one at bat. Then mm. got dropped a second time. Yeah. And then, and then having been brought in as a, uh, a COVID substitute effectively, or well, not during the match, but just before the match in Sydney, and then a concussion substitute. Here, yeah, that's I mean, right. so he's he's been shoehorned in or been like very much you know 13th man into the side on a couple of occasions and then had to spend the whole Sydney test on the sidelines, literally on the boundary line in a plastic chair watching it because he wasn't allowed in the change rooms. So it's not been a very nice um, couple of comebacks, I suppose, for for Matthew Renshaw. There's 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 time yet if he's good enough, but trying to get a, a another crack is difficult. He probably has a better claim to playing in England than here even. I mean, the time that he spent in county cricket, which has been pretty successful compared to some of his peers in, in the time that they've spent over there, you know, he could make a better case for being an England opener than some others going around. That, that's how I feel. And the other thing is the selectors love him. And that's good because he wasn't in favour 
you know, in previous selection panels looked the other way with Renshaw, especially when there was the bands for Warner and Smith and, and Bancroft, the fact that two of those guys were openers and Renshaw couldn't find his way into the test side with the exception of the game at Johannesburg. Yeah. And when we watched the way he was treated in Dubai firsthand, yeah, I think that he will get a look at mm. some point in England. He'll at least be in the squad. And um, look, it's, it's difficult, right? Test cricket is a, a tough environment. But... Uh, if if he gets that chance in England, you may see yet another comeback. The resemblance, as Eric Khan said, a, a, a resemblance, a style reminds me of an obvious giant of the game, and I think obvious giant is a clue, and I think we're talking about Matthew Hayden here in terms yes. of being a tall, left-handed Queenslander who can hit straight down the ground. Renshaw's not as burly, and maybe never will be. It's fairly hard to be as burly, just, just medically speaking, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> in terms of the physical limitations of matter and the universe, it's hard to be as large as Matthew Hayden, a man with his own gravitational pull. Yeah, um, our security light guard. bends around <laughs> Matthew Hayden. It's quite extraordinary. The, 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 our security guard, when we made story time, mm. 125 or at least how we framed it up at the time in our prison-esque hotel that we were crashing for yeah. that episode. The only lack of resemblance is uh, successfully playing the sweep shot in India, which Matthew True. Hayden did and Matthew Renshaw did not. But he, he did for one series. I just want to kind of he did in back over that. No, Hayden, I mean. Oh, Hayden. Hayden gets remembered for 2001. Sure. Kind of gets lost that he came here in... Two more times. Two more times mm. and enjoyed nowhere near as much success. I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish what he achieved, but mm. take it in totality. It wasn't as though he did that sweepology stuff before I won and became a world beater over here. He became a world beater in a series that we'll never forget, but he wasn't a world beater in 04. Or he did well in 04, but didn't dominate, and yeah. and he was in decline by 2000. Made, made scores. I think he averaged sort of mid-20s maybe yeah. on those series. Which like is fine, by the way, in India. Yeah, yeah, you're contributing, of course. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I reckon that's the 360 um, for our sushi Okay. Loving friend, and, and I think that that's where we've come to with that number. I'm pretty happy that's solved. Looking forward to seeing you again, Uzair, at some place around the world. Next up, Jeff, the second time I'm seeing the Snake Eyes, 400 from James Harding. He's got a clue for me. He just says this, an unlucky one-test wonder. I said to you before we recorded that I'm pretty sure we can keep making story time forever because... Just when we think that, oh, maybe we've done all of the great DABs, we've done all of the great tales, like, I'm struck by how many brilliant tales there are still yet to be told, and this will go mm -hmm. to one of those. So I looked at all the fours or 40s or 400s who played one right. test for the onces, and Frank Allen took four wickets. He averaged 20, so you could say he was unlucky not to play again. John Harry, less unlucky. He averaged four in his two at-bats in Test cricket. Sean Young, four not out in his own mm. innings for Australia. We spoke about Sean in story time. 125. Uh, not quite Bo Casson, 401, one after that, but I wanted to acknowledge that both Bo Casson and Dan Cullen straddle 400, nearly. 401 for Casson, 497 cap number for, for Dan Cullen, who played his one test with uh, Jason Gillespie when Gillespie made his um, double century mm. in, in Chittagong in, in 2006. But then I happened upon an absolute beauty. DC, play the music. Here we go, Jeff. You're going to enjoy this. Albert Hartkopf. Now, I have seen this name in lists before when we look through the baggy grey numbers, mm -hmm. but owing to the fact that he played once, I've never really interrogated... I say interrogated. I've never mm. really clicked on his profile, let alone gone into depth about what he achieved as a cricketer. And I intend on telling you all about it because it's an absolutely cracking story. Dr. Albert Ernest Victor 
Hart Kopf, to be precise, born in 1889 in North Fitzroy, a part of Melbourne that we both know well. Was he the dentist? He was a doctor. Was he one of the. He was a doctor. Mm. So yeah, so he, he played. So we had a whole thing about cricketing dentists at one point. Ah, right. Well, I, th- I assumed he was a medical doctor because mm. he worked in a GP later. I'm not ruling out him also being a dentist because this guy had mad skills. Okay. He did so many disparate things that him becoming both a dentist and a medical doctor could easily have played out. <laughs> I want to learn more about this guy into the future. I'll, I'll confirm that later. Now, his parents are German and his you know, first class could, could career have guessed that. <laughs> begins in 1911. I just wanted to sort of note that on the way through. Like okay. It was a pretty tough time to be of German origin in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. But before all of that, before the war, he went to Scotch and boy was he a star. Footy, cricket, track and field. He was described as the most remarkable schoolboy athlete there has ever been in Victoria. And that's bolstered by his records. He broke the state record in the 100, the 220 yards, the 440 yards, the shot put and the long jump. Shot put and long jump together at last. Oh, finally. (laughs) You can see one, two, four, long jump, but the shot put in there as well. I think he was second up in the high jump as well. So he was... It's just a shame he was German because he was like a Swiss army knife. (laughs) And straight away as a teenager, he's playing league footy for university for those who don't know they were in the competition at the start and played through until just after the war and cricket for Fitzroy as a student when he was studying medicine at University of Melbourne right he actually started at uni in 1908 and he was playing in the ones not long after that he played 48 games and kicked 87 goals and he was a place kicker now, I'm not sure how much you know about the origin of place kicking in Australian rules football. Not a lot. But there was a time when, much as it is with um, points after touchdown in, in American football, or, or, more, or more acutely or more relevant rugby league and rugby union, we could bring a, a tee out to kick for goal. This was absolutely a thing in Aussie rules football for like the first 30 or 40 years was since it? the league started. I know a little bit about it because when I was a kid, in 93, this never quite made the 93 documentary that Gilly Bredo and I made because we planned to get Dermy on the show all along. Dermy, who's been on the final word but not been on the footy podcast. Anyway, he was playing Rezies in 93 more than he was playing in the ones. In fact, he only played one game in the seniors, I think, that year. And he was well playing against Melbourne and in the Rezies and takes a mark on the final siren and he called for some dirt and Dermy set up to place kick after the siren to kick a goal as a throwback to, you know, 80 or 90 years earlier. In the end, he said Soddert picked up the ball and kicked it conventionally, kicked a drop punt for goal. But I remember being thinking, what on earth is going on here? Because so are, are you allowed to do that? You are, You're allowed yeah, to place You're kick? allowed to place kick. And our mate Artie here... So that um, doesn't count as Albert, having, sorry, having lost control of the ball or whatever. If you've, you know, you've marked it, you've got control of the ball. If you then put it on the ground... And then kick it off the ground. Yeah, I think it. That's I legit. mean, I, I, I have to say, I don't know the ins and outs of whether you put the ball on the mark or whether you have to stand. But can you stand yeah. on the mark? I, I assume it would be you'd have to set it back from where the mark was set. Yeah, or you, you could set the ball on the mark and then kick it from there. Quite possibly. Either way, I want to see someone bring it back. Yeah. Um, and our man here, Albert Hartkopf, which I'm struggling to pronounce, um, became a bit of an expert at it. Kicks, you know, the better part of two goals a game for university. In 1911. Well, he was still playing footy. Mm. He won the state 440 yards just because. Broke the record. This is Australia's CB Fry. I realise when going through this, if only he played more than one test match, we would know a lot more about this dude. Huh. He would have been doing his backflip from the floor to the mantelpiece. He would have been offered the throne of Albania. He would have broken the long jump world record as CB Fry did in addition to playing um, test cricket and, do and you, all the rest of it. Do you want to know what his name means in German? Please. Hardhead. Hardhead. Albert Hardhead. Albert Hardhead. I Albert like Tough Nut. <laughs> well, well you, you'd want to be in that era because, you know, it was a time for tough nuts. He made his state debut for Victoria that year too, 1911. 
couple of days before Christmas against New South Wales, made 42 not out and a duck, and that's relevant later, the duck. Just remember that bit. Okay. And then he took two for 20 with his leggies. How good's that? He's a leg spinner as well. <laughs> He's a leg just on the side. In the end, he kind of was more a leggy than a, than a batter, but we'll come to that. World War One kicks in. Starts dreadful, horrible. Kicks off. Horrific. <laughs> the first whistle goes. Yes, the, the, just the most tragic and disgraceful conflict of them all, arguably, certainly in modern memory. And he was still playing footy until 1914, but obviously everything finished up as the war as the war started. He'd only played seven first-class games to that point, though. I want to stress this point. Right. He was a footballer who was playing cricket in the summer and sure. breaking records on the track. Mm. That was kind of his life. He made a couple of half centuries and took seven wickets in his second game. But, you know, all told, he's focusing on his medicine through the war. Mm-hmm. Um, he works at the women's and then he goes to work at the Royal Children's in Perth. Yeah, and with a German name, again, you know, that, that probably wouldn't have been an easy sell. But he, he did his bit for the war effort in terms of what he was doing as a doctor back on the home front. They call me LB Toughnut. Good to see you. Well, now, why don't you come on in and tell me what's wrong with you? So after the war, he's back to Melbourne, opens up a, a practice in Northcote. And then his cricket really picks up. Against New South Wales in the first game back, he makes 53 and 49. In 1922, the November of that year, I looked at the scorecard today, a huge game for him against the travelling MCC. Takes five for 23 in the first dig, eight for 105 in the second dig, Ooh. makes 86 with the bat in the first innings and wins the game, 14 not out at the end. So oh, 100, so 13 on. wickets for the match against England, you know, it's yeah. the MCC who are travelling at the time, plus 100 runs at 100 and therefore the winning runs at the end. So Lovely. I would say, you know, he's kind of on the radar. Admittedly, he's deeper into his career, he's well into his 30s, but on their next We all know term, that the Germans didn't have radar. English got very it first. Good. Very good. Although different conflict, <laughs> but still. Uh, then in the next tour, England are out in 24-25. He makes another half century against England at the MCG. And guess what? They go full Scotty Boland. January, New Year's Day 1925. He's 35. And, you know, what a life he's had by this point. He's finished playing footy. Didn't play footy after the war. It's a pretty special Australian team under Herbie Horseshoe Collins. They'd won the first test. But in what I'm thinking of as a similar sort of Boland-esque MCG specialist, he'd made runs and taken wickets against the English there, not once but twice. Mm-hmm. They pick him. Mm-hmm. They pick him to bat um, number eight. And as I say, it's a, it's a pretty sort of useful lineup. Herbie, the horseshoe, Collins, captaining, Warren Bardsley, Victor Richardson, Bill Ponsford, they're all there. You know, these are some of the biggest names of the interwar period. He walks in at eight on debut at age 35 and whacks 80 of them. Hits 80. On, he's 20 runs away from being a century on Test From being a, a Roger Hardigan century at number eight on debut. Yeah, I mean, and, and exactly that, exactly that, spot on. Um, Herbie Collins was part of that crew as well, wasn't he? But yeah, so 20 away from a 100 on debut at number eight. They get 600, which puts it in some perspective, but you've got, you've got to make him. England then get 479. His leggies are less effective, one for 120, bought heaps of overs, but his wicket was that of wicketkeeper Bert Strudwick. It was the final wicket of the England first innings. Second time around, you know how I mentioned the duck? He makes a duck, Mm. a six-ball duck, out to Morris Tate, who traps him leg before wicket. So we're looking at 4-0-0. His batting average was 40. Mm -hmm. Right? You Mm -hmm. with me? That's why the the number is what it is. It turns into a a great test match, actually. England set Australia... England has set, rather, um, 372. And at one stage, they're four for 254. They're a real show of breaking the record and, and chasing that. But they lose six for 36. Arthur Maley, the main spinner, and Jack Gregory take, will share nine wickets between them, which meant there was only enough time for four overs from our man, Albie, who took none for 14. And, and that's it. He was dropped. Just the one test match at the MCG on his home ground. Made the 80 runs. 
yeah, admittedly, out for a duck in the second dig. Averaging 40, 35 years of age, one test match as the MCG specialist, and, and he doesn't play again. He continues as a Victorian player for a couple of years before finishing at age 38 in 1927-28. 41 games, average 35 with the bat, 31 with the ball, so very respectable you know, all-rounder, higher batting average than a bowling average, a true all-rounder, you could say. Went back to his medical practice before dying in Kew in 1968 at the age of 78, but yeah, a really full first half of his life playing sport, doing everything. And how's this? He didn't get a wisdom obituary until 1994. For shame. I don't know how that could have happened. How could he slip through the cracks? But he did. Deserves a book, if you ask me, and, and mm. maybe that's one for us for the future. A man who was, according to the clue from James Harding, an unlucky one-test wonder, however, in a way, lucky too. Cap number 120, Albert Hartkopf, who made quite the contribution. LB Tufner, the Albert guy who Tufner. put his head in the vice <laughs> and then broke the vice. <laughs> the vice came out second best. How about that? Uh, oh, don't you agree? Our yeah. Australia CB Fry? Yeah. You know, doctor yep. who did important work athlete. during the war. Proper, genuine athlete. Not a sort of, I did a bit of running. No. Um, you know, I, I ran a few 400-meter races yeah. doing my footy pre Ran away from the cops a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. dumped my car and ran, <laughs> ran away Ben Cousin style. Um, this guy had... A proper athletics career could have gone on. I love that thinking. They're not going to figure out whose car that was. <laughs> there's, there's no way they can trace that back to me, the owner of this car. The thing I want to learn if we do go and research Albie Moore is how come he didn't consider becoming an Olympian in 1912? Because he would have been the right age and breaking all the right records. I suppose it was a combination of university, footy and cricket. Yeah. <laughs> he had a full dance card. And also that sport was not, it didn't pay you anything. True. Like you, yeah. It cost you money to, if you wanted to go to the Olympics. It was like, okay, well, do you have the money to get a ship, buy a passage on a ship, which was very expensive, across the world, go somewhere and spend several months doing it while not getting paid anything. Yeah, it was in Sweden, in Stockholm in yeah. 1912, so it's quite the gallop. Mm. And as a doctor, he would know all about <laughs> the syndrome <laughs> one can pick up if one gets there. All right, I love it. Um, and thank you for giving us the opportunity, James Harding, mm. to come at that particular number and tell that particular story. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. Brent Simmons is up next, a, uh, not only a friend of the show, but a very helpful friend of the show. Yes. With 620GBP. Uh, Brent was instrumental in me being able to solve the, the clue about married couples who had played test cricket. He knew some of the, the okay. finer details about that. He, he just pointed me in the right direction and I was able to he, go and he's, find He's a yeah, very intelligent guy. I think I'm right in saying that when Mel Shawley first came out to Australia in 1990-91 mm. that Brett was part of that trip. Like They stayed at a, the same hostel or something like that and have been to multiple tours and, and multiple matches yes. in England thereafter. Yes. So Brent Simmons, 620 in pounds. There's a clue. Yeah, so World Cup winner. This is a, a tough clue. I admire the fact that you've got here on this. A World Cup winner who dismissed a future England coach in what they thought would be their last international appearance. However, they went on to play for and coach another country, winning player of the match in their last game. The number is the sum of figures from the two games mentioned. Mm. Now, I've got this and I don't have this in that linking it to the number is difficult, but I'm pretty sure I've worked out what it is. Okay. So, I think we're talking about women's cricket here uh, partly because Brent 
is generally more interested in women's cricket. That's been where his niche numbers have come from. But also because the, the clue seems weighted that way in terms of somebody who's ended up playing for another country while having played at a high enough level to dismiss a future England coach. That's yeah. less likely to be a men's cricket thing. I kind of went through all the World Cup winning teams when I looked at this one. I'm like, well, it's improbable that you've won a men's World Cup and ended up playing and coaching another country. Yep. Like maybe you could coach another one, but play for another one. Yes. But the well, winning... We know the, that, right? We know that immediately. The winning the World Cup bit, this is, this is the bit that doesn't quite add up for me. But anyway, I'll, I'll walk you through it. Mm-hmm. So we're looking for somebody who coached England and who could have been dismissed. Now, in terms of England women's coaches who are women, there have not been very many because they've pretty much all been men. True. So there's Ruth Prideaux, yep. who's the first coach, and that's sort of on a pro-am kind of basis. Back in, she starts in 1988, I think, and she goes through until they win that World Cup in 1993. And then there's Lisa Kitely, the Australian, who did the job recently. And that's it. All of, all of the other England women's coaches have been men. So players who have played against Lisa Kitely in their last match in international cricket, there are quite a few, but players who dismissed Lisa Kitely in their last match, there are not many. There are, in fact, two. One of them is Katrina Keenan, who's a New Zealand bowler, who fits the bill initially because her very last game was the World Cup win in 2000 that we ah, talked about a couple of weeks ago. Yes. And she's the one who got Lisa Kitely out in that game, opening the bowling. I like it. With, uh, with that lovely seam movement that she used to get. So that seems like it should be her from the off, but she never played for another country. She stayed very involved in New Zealand cricket as an administrator and so on as well. So I was like, OK, well, this doesn't stack up. The other player is Indomati Gordial John, who was a West Indies off-spinning all-rounder who grew up in Guyana, uh, learned her cricket in local Guyanese cricket, mostly playing boys and, and men's cricket, and got picked for the West Indies team at the age of 18 in 2003. So she went to a qualifying tournament in Europe um, that was being played against the Netherlands, Scotland, Japan were in this tournament, right. which I didn't know about, and Pakistan. And it was in Netherlands, this particular qualifying tournament. She plays some games there. In the game against Pakistan, she takes four for 17 from 10 overs as an 18-year-old. Um, tight bowling is, is a, a theme of her career. So that gets her on a tour to India and Pakistan in 2004. She does okay. She bowls very economically, takes a couple of wickets, gets a test match in Karachi as well. So she's got a test cap and she goes to the World Cup in 2005, was it? And plays one game and that game is against Australia and in that game she gets Lisa Kitely out, caught for a slow half century and Indomati then opens the batting herself. She only makes eight. But that's it. That's her last ODI for the West Indies. She's 19 years old. Um, and she moves around the region a bit. She lives in a couple of different places in the Caribbean over the next few years. And by 2009, she's ended up in New York City. And so she starts getting involved in USA cricket at this point. And they want her to play in a, a tournament in 2009, but she's ruled out by a qualification rules she hasn't quite been there long enough and so usa cricket appoint her as the coach <laughs> she's not allowed That's to good. play but she coaches the women's team she's 23 years old right and she's the national team the coach, captain coach which is alenko of her time so then once she finishes the last few months of her qualification she becomes captain coach okay she's legitimately captain coaching the usa women's team in 2010 and she is the star player in a, a tournament called the ICC Americas Championship, which is a, a three-match 
50 over series in Toronto against Canada. It's at King City, Toronto, the place where Steve Smith and David Warner went after they got banned uh, yes. to play that dodgy, whatever it was On called, Matty. Global Super League. It was League called, it was called the Global T20. I hope everybody got paid. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> um, it was on matting. And I think um, Benny Horn and Pete Lawler got sent out to they cover did, it yeah. because uh, they were there to basically be on Steve Smith watch, which was all a bit all a bit absurd in hindsight. Yes. So she's the leading run scorer in the series, bowls well in the series. That gets them a gig at the 2011 World Cup qualifier. And there's one match in that, that series where she's the star player. She top scores with 83, and then she takes one for seven from nine overs. <laughs> like, unhittable. So... And that's her last series, right? So they get through to the qualifier and then she doesn't play in the qualifier the the next year. And I'm not 100% sure whether this is why or not, but basically because the USA Cricket Association at the time was a basket case and and had all of those administrative Mm. scandals and corruption and getting kicked out of the ICC and all the rest of it. And before that qualifier, there was a dispute. Nobody's getting paid, but they get a little per DM payment to be on tour somewhere. There's a dispute about the per diems being too low and a bunch of the players protest and they basically all get sacked so out of the original squad of 15 nine of the original squad don't actually go to to the qualifier they get cut by the usa cricket association who's like oh well if you want to complain we'll fuck off then and they get rid of them and they pick there are two players in their 50s who go to this qualifier (laughs) and others in their 40s they basically just pick anybody who's left over who they haven't decided is blacklisted cutting people like monty burns yeah Exactly. Get rid of those sideburns. <laughs> so, so Indamati is among the players who gets pushed out. Whether she was one of the protesters, I'm not entirely sure. It seems likely, but who knows. She doesn't go to that 2011 World Cup qualifier and she doesn't play for the USA again. Now, from all of the stuff in the clue, I'm like, last game, dismissed Lisa Kitely, yep. became a, a captain and a coach of another country later in her life all of those things I'm like it can't be anyone else but World Cup winner she didn't win a World Cup unless there's some unless there's 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 like a lower league competition I wonder whether there's like an intercontinentally sort of yeah I mean it wouldn't be called a World Cup no and so that part doesn't make sense and I can't figure out the 620 with combined figures because as far as I can tell she didn't win player of the match in her last match she won player of the match in the first game of her last series, but whether she won it again in the third of that series, I don't think so because she didn't bat and she took none for nine or four overs. Mm-hmm. So she wouldn't have... It would have been one of her last matches, but not her last match. And so how do you put one for 37, which she took in her last West Indies game, yeah. and then whether it's the none for nine or the one for seven or whatever it is, None of that works to add up to 620. So I don't understand what you're doing here, Brent, with the number or the World Cup bit, but I, I can't believe that it's anybody else who captained and coached their country after playing for another country. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Um, it, it doesn't... Yeah, it, it doesn't feel like... You know, if it was just dealing with some European stuff, like I can imagine a world where it's a, you know, an Irish player or, mm. or a Dutch player, they used to play that European Championship, didn't they? Where Izzy Westbury played a yeah. one-day international or an back age in group 2005. World Cup. Yeah, the age group World Cup, that's possible. But they didn't used to have... I mean, well, they girls had and women haven't had them. Yeah. So. Well, women, but not girls, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I know that she played some under-23s West Indies cricket when she was a teenager, but 
they wouldn't have had an under 23s women's world cup so anyway you can you can explain to me what i'm missing brent but but if it is anybody else but indomati gordial john the off-spinning all-rounder i will be very surprised and she's only 37 she yep. could go around again yep. she could play for a third country well, um, there's time if she's good enough. As she could become a three-club veteran, she yep. could become... Technically, you're a journeyman yep. or a journeywoman in this mm. case when you've played for three clubs. So, she could become um, a Martin Pike. She, exactly. I think Pike played in four, four clubs, four didn't clubs, he? And then yeah. he won flags with two of them. I'm trying to think who else meets that criteria of a great three-club player. They'll, they'll be out there. Justin Murphy. Justin Murphy. I don't think he was... A, did he, what did he get, where did he get third? Geelong. Oh, he went to Geelong. Of course he did. Of course he did. A year or two. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's funny. Went it's back to thing. cult. It's not Dale Kickett who played for five. No. Or maybe even six. Five or six. Dale Kickett's the clubhouse leader. Yeah. It's a, uh, I suppose Jack Gunston is now a three-club player, mm. having left Hawthorne before playing for Adelaide when he came over and played so wonderfully and won three flags. Yeah, they're, they're an interesting category, three-club players. And, well, we may put where we veered off course here. Let's see if Indomartia <laughs> can join them. Charlie Ryan is your next number. Uh, it is $3.60 as well. We've already had one three sixty, haven't we? No. Um, no, we haven't, but we have. You're we right. Have. Yeah, y- 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 we haven't, but we have. So you ended up doing um, earlier. Well, it wasn't three sixty, was it? It yeah, was another. Oh, no, yeah, we yeah. did. Sorry. It was there. So usually we would double those up, but that's okay. So we're going to have the, the second three sixty of the day via Charlie Ryan. Helpfully, there was no clue here. It's an AUD, which gave me lots of room to work with. And I'm so pleased with where I got mm. to on it as well. You know, like this, sometimes. This, must have been, this was a double header, but I've, I've accidentally split them up when we've arranged okay. our answers. That's, that's all right. right. In a way, this is, I'm glad it's worked out this way because you've done a three sixty and I'm doing one unbeknownst to you. And, and Charlie, hopefully, will be the. Uh, the beneficiary of a, an interesting story. So first of all, I want to acknowledge that it's Michael Bevan's test cap. But I did an answer on him, or you did an answer on him. We've done several answers yeah, on him. Yeah, but on his test career, like pretty oh, recently. We've done two. We've done, we've done two extensive. We yeah. did one about Bevan and the short ball. And, and, and the done, first class career, that's right. And we did one about his bowling and how it came through. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, Will Bukowski's test average is 36. I really hope it's not one and done. He made 62, then, then 10 on his test debut at Sydney a couple of years ago. But how about this? I didn't sort of expect this to come up. Yeah, you know, I would say that Don Bradman is the cricketer for whom more words have been devoted than any other. That, that until 20 years ago would have been... Sorry? Comfortably. Yeah, I think until 20 years ago that would have been a, a statement of obvious facts. Now it's possible that, that, that Suchin, Tandulka, Ambirat, Kohli... <laughs> they might have more words written about them now given the... the extraordinary fandom and, and beyond yeah. with, with cricketers count, in India. Do you count the internet? I don't know if you can count the internet. Yeah. Well, there, put it this way. There are more people with VK fan or Kohli fan in their, in their username yeah. than Bradman fan. Sure. Um, you know, and, and like wonder, maybe, maybe that should change. Yeah, I wonder what happens with like the VK fan. Like it's just trying to, I, I've never quite understood why putting that in there, like it's going to get you a meeting, an audience with Rat? I don't know if it is. It's just an expression of, you know, I mean, I like listening to the mountain goats. You know, yeah. if you're really into a particular... No, that's true. If you, you, that's if you true. like wrestling, you put that in there. Yeah, it's you, true. It's, I, it's, I, have been, I have been a big fan of things before, I suppose. It should be yeah, no different I for Virat Kohli. Yes. Now, I knew that Don Bradman bowled leg breaks, just like Albie Albert Hartkopf. Hartkopf and in us. fact, I mean, if they needed someone for the 37, 38 Ashes... I mean, instead well, of yeah. Frank fucking Ward, maybe or, they should have looked or, at Albert Hartcock. Or, 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 or maybe the, the 28-29 Ashes where they had all the old blokes playing for Australia yeah. and they lost, uh, they lost 4-0, 4-1, 4-0. And Bradman played his first test in that series before getting dropped and coming back and making a century to finish. Anyway. They, they dropped him like a gun. Yes. Isn't that one of the great lines, yeah. Paul Kelly? Yeah. 
Well, here's this. So, um, Don Bradman bowled leg breaks. Well, the only thing we really know about his bowling of any substance is that on that United States tour of 1932, which was technically his honeymoon, he took over 50 wickets from memory. So he was playing all day, every day. <laughs> you know, he you... Clip in the check. Don Bradman, <laughs> paid to root. <laughs> Pay... Yeah, he was on that trip because he... <laughs> Played a shitload of cricket every <laughs> single fucking day, if I recall correctly. Um, so at first class level, though, because those weren't first class games, he took 36 wickets. So I could use that as the way in, but I'm not going to do that. 36 wickets at 38 in just 352 overs. That's a pretty good strike rate when you consider how infrequently he was used. Test cricket, he had a trundle on nine occasions. Mm-hmm. And bowled 27 overs all up with his leg spin. Seemingly no logic to when he bowled either. Like, it's not as though he bowled a lot and then stopped like Michael Clark, or never bowled, then bowled a bunch at the end of his career. Like, I'm not sure who the right example would be there, but he just kind of bowled at random intervals for an over here or a spell there, as mm. I'm about to explain to you through the course of this answer. The first time that he bowled in test cricket was the um, the famous Lord's Test of 1930, where he made his magical 254 that David Frith and others have written that that was Bradman's best ever innings. He was used as the sixth bowler and and bowled a maiden, and that was that. Maybe to get in their heads after what he'd done with the bat. Maybe just change of ends. Yeah, but I kind of think maybe like with that one, it's like we want to get in your heads. The the, the guy who's just made the big 250. But it was just one over, one over and done. It took him six months to get his next bowl. He bowled in both innings against the Windies at Adelaide in 1930. First innings, four overs, none for seven, and then missed out with the bat. Rare as it is for Bradman at Adelaide, made four. Second innings, had another go. Five overs, one maiden, one for eight. Bradman picked up the West Indies wicketkeeper, Ivan Barrow, leg before wicket, and he broke a really important stand. They'd put on 65 Barrow, and I'm not sure who he was batting with, but it meant that Australia were only chasing 170 in the fourth innings. If that chap keeps batting, given he's got to start clearly, they might be chasing 250, who knows? Mm. But in the end, they, they were after 170 and they, and they got it none down and one by 10 wickets. So a test where Bradman made four runs and took one wicket. It seems right out of kilter, but I, I love it. How strange. Um, but not turn two, again, for the rest of the series, despite mm-hmm. the vital wicket in the second dig. Took until December 1931. It's a Melbourne. fair effort to get an LBW decision as a leg spinner in 1931. Good point. Yeah, because it's before the law change. So it needed to be pitching in line, hitting in line, and pretty much taking all three steps yeah. out. Yeah, it needed to be like landing on the front toe in front of middle. Yeah. Oh, uh, actually, it may have. It, it may have done just that. It might have been a full Full bunger. Park that for later. <laughs> There's a nugget there for okay. you. December 1931, he gets another bowl at Melbourne against South Africa. None for two off one, whatever. Oh, that's when they beat him in two days, wasn't it? Uh, I don't know. I didn't look at it closely. 1931, was that the two-day test? So well, yeah. the two-day test is against... Sorry, there's there's one against West Indies and one against yeah. South Africa. One one is done in two playing days, but there's a rain day and a rest right. day, and the other one is just done in two days flat. Well, it might have been. Strap. He might have got a bowl in, in all the carnage. Interestingly, body line is where he bowled the most, which, again, you don't kind of think Don Bradman bowling, you know, pretty... Steaming in and bumping him. Yeah, bowling leg spin pump. <laughs> I suspect that's what he bowled. Um, he bowled in three innings across three separate test matches. The first of those was at Adelaide, you know, the famous Burt Oldfield mm. match and so on. Um, 90 years... Last month, that anniversary, so 10 years since I wrote an essay um, with Wayne Swan. Wayne Swan's name was on it, so, you know, it's his piece. But um, for the Fabian Society, I think it was, and appeared in the Age Opinion page and on the front page of the paper back in 
December, uh, January uh, 26, it would have been, 2013, if you want to read the first cricket article that I ever contributed to, that was that. Fabian Society, what are they the doing? Fabians. What are they going They're a very famous kind of, um, in, in, in labour history, they're, they're effectively a think tank. I think it was the Fabians. Anyway, the, the shorter version ended up in The Age and we wrote about that. Michael Cooney, who was with us. Um, it just sounds like such a fancy name. Fabian. It Hello, is. my name is Fabian well, to, and to, I have a society. Well, to be a Fabian is, is kind of like a, a yeah. proud part of the labour tradition, both Right. The UK and Australia. Anyway, I'm a member of the Fabians. I prefer a, a Fabian, like your Fab. You know, my <laughs> like society fa- is Fab. Yeah, like Fab Marini from The Strokes, yeah. who I'm seeing in May. By the way, I'm going to All Points East and seeing the fucking Strokes. Can't wait. Haven't seen him in years. Where are we? All oh, right. Yes, here's where we are. So yeah, bowled in that Test match um, in Adelaide. England are building a lead in the third innings after Oldfield's been knocked out, and Bradman comes in to bowl and mm. takes one for 23 from four overs. Who did he get out? Who was his second and final test cricket? Only a guy who hit 22 test centuries, averaged 58 in test cricket, and nearly lost his cock in the West Indies. Wally, Wally Hammond. Hammond. He bowls him for 85. Now, how's this? Wisdom tells me it was the final over of the day. Wisdom tells me it was a full toss ah. and he's missed. Wisdom does not tell me it's Don Bradman bowling. You think that might be a pertinent detail? Yep. That Bradman has knocked over Hammond in the final over of the day. Warn-esque. The, the last the ball of the day. Can you believe Can that? Can you believe it? Bassett Alley. But that doesn't get a mention in the Almanac's report. I thought, I've got to read more about this. That's how I learned it was a full toss. But, okay. but nothing, nothing further. So could a full toss could have played it with his cock. Anyway. Um, didn't have one left. Talk about bearing the lead. Oz get nowhere near their target of 532. All out 193. Body line fury ensues. So on, so on. Uh, Bradman um, uh, made 66, but he wasn't out to pace at Adelaide in that chase. He was out to Headley Verity. Caught and bold, the famous spinner. England go 2-1 up, and we all know what happens next. On the back of this, though, he got all of these overs. He got seven, the most in his career in the first dig at Brisbane. None for 17. Got one over at Sydney to finish the series. None for four. And that's it for five years. In 1938 at the Oval when Len Hutton's breaking Bradman's world record. And Clary Grimmett's <laughs> not picked. Exactly. It's, um, it's the... Well, it's Chuck Fleetwood-Smith who bowls 87 overs, 11 maidens, one for 298, and, and Bill O'Reilly, um, Bradman's old, I guess, friend, sparring partner, everything in between. Yeah. 85 overs, 25 maidens, three for 178. Well... England declare at 903 for seven. We all know that. We've told that story many times with Hutton famously breaking the world record, one of the first ever games televised to the 20,000 television sets that could receive the signal from Alexandra Palace, which is where I live now, when you're enough to it. But Bradman, 2.2 overs, number six. Bradman comes on for the 331st over of the innings. <laughs> they give him three, two and a bit overs, and they go, mate, we're going to declare. It's okay. We've passed 900. So that was that. Has to wait a decade to bowl one more time after the war against India. One, one over, none time. for four. Adelaide again. Celebrate. Yeah. Music's got me feeling so free. And that's it. He should have quit after the Hammond wicket. Had he quit after yeah. the Hammond wicket, his test bowling average would have been two wickets at 20.5 and it would have you know, been something we probably remark upon. Instead, mm. it finished... At 36 for the two wickets. It was worth the deep dive. So thank you, Charlie Ryan, for the space to do exactly that. Charlie Ryan, you've done a great thing. You've done a service to your people. Uh, you've done a service to our people. You've, uh, you've, you've contributed a small amount to the greater sum of human knowledge, the greater um, expansion of humanity. And the milkman of human do. kindness. Yes. As Billy Bragg sang. <laughs> All right. We've got one more number to go. It okay. comes from Brendan Crabb, the pincer attack. 
It is $2.03. 203, and it comes with a clue. A clue that you and I spent a lot of time with. And Jeff, if you've cracked the code here, you're a better man than I. It was a tour match. I attended as a teen, which took place at a future home for Hall of Famers. More than one well-known sport betting enthusiast played that day. The number directly relates to the performance by a legend of the game who was not renowned for being proficient in this area. I mean, I went through all of the tour game 203s. There weren't many of them. There was a Mike Gadding, there was something else, and I'm like, I'm nowhere here. Um, but mm. it looks like you've got somewhere. I have got somewhere with this, although I did spend a lot of time thinking about, as you said, tour matches. I mean, initially I read the clue as Hall of Farmers, and I was like, it's the Hall of Farmers. <laughs> it's like Valhalla, but for guys who've rolled over under a tractor or something. <laughs> you know, they all sit up there with their big tankards of mead. And I love um, when there's nothing I enjoy more than someone on a tractor texting in yeah. when we're doing commentary. There's, you know, I'm on it, and that's I guess that's that's a, that's a tradition, isn't it? That the ABC absolutely. Started. Jim yeah. Maxwell used to talk about it. Combine a lot. harvester. Um, I'll tell you what. Here's a hot tip. If you are not actually doing that, but you want to get your text read out on the ABC, all point. you need to do is say you're on a combine harvester. Well, we have that even on the SEN text feed because we're around the country as well these days with the with the network, the broader network. We get loads of text from people on tractors. Um, so, yeah. It's, it's, I think more than might be realistic in terms of how many people are actually on tractors. That in hindsight, I think you're right. I reckon people have, uh, have worked this out before yeah, we have. I, I they want to get their view read out and the way yeah. to get it expressed on the broadcast is saying they are indeed a farmer, yeah. a hall of farmer. They're 15 years ahead of us in terms of figuring out. <laughs> because, because how many simultaneous tractor drivers would there be out there listening to the Should we tell Jim? Or leave, we, we won't tell Jim. No, I don't want to ruin. I mentioned the disappointment on his face you know let's 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 allow him to continue through his uh, later years feeling f feeling benevolent and happy about this it's always it's the tractors the combine harvester or, or it's the header and i don't actually know what a header does yeah um, but the others i can make an educated guess anyway not the hall of farmers not where they're pouring out the tankards of mead as they sing eternity away yeah. um and, and remember the great wheat wheat crop of 2003 or when the drought ended in 09 mm. the hall of famers what stumped me for a long time was that the Australian Cricket Hall of Fame is in the Australian Sports Museum at the MCG. Where the Batmobile will be one day. Right. This is... <laughs> I <laughs> promise. Next to the Cathy Freeman race. <laughs> See, the, the plan was when Marty was sports minister, and I mean, never quite got around to it, and he's out of the parliament now. Must find a new way to get mm. Batmobile in, in Hall of Fame. Note to self. Yeah, note to self. I mean, there, it was at ScienceWorks, wasn't it, where it had the race, the Cathy Freeman thing. Yes, yes. If, if you are from... The UK, for instance. If you're from Australia, you'll know this story. But this is one of the funniest things that has ever happened in human <laughs> history. It's a it's a sequence of panels, and they light up along along a, a stretch of I don't know twenty meters <laughs> or something yeah, like this. Yeah. And it's Kathy Freeman at the pace that she's running when she wins the gold medal in Sydney 2000, right? So it's like her closing burst or whatever it is, and they light up at that speed. And so. The, the, the point of the exhibit is you can Freeman's line up. closing, looks a winner, Ergen Coyer. You can Work to Duke Kathy at the 150. She's lifting. She's lifting, yep. looks a winner. One of the great, Kathy. One of the great calls. Oh. Um, I start crying tear, talking tear, about tear it. In the <laughs> Tom Deeson and I in Pakistan last year would regularly put on moments like that to start crying in our hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You and Tom Deeson made me start watching the Hansi Cronier documentary, <laughs> at which point you both passed out. And I ended up watching the rest of it on my own because I was like, this is quite interesting. <laughs> Walking back to my hotel at two in the morning after having caught up on, on what was going on mm. with, with Hansi, who, uh, well, he might come up in a minute. So the, the point is this. 
there's there's this light up panel and you can race it right like you the you the punter in in the science works museum you can you can kneel down next to it and then you can run along and it lights up as as it goes along and you see if you can get there ahead of the lights That's which right, you yeah. can't because you are not Kathy Freeman <laughs> and Kathy Freeman is better at running than you are at running but there is this particularly when it comes to women's sport there's this delusion in the head of many men that they would be better than the best female athletes you know like there was a a survey at one point which was do you think you could win a point against serena williams in a tennis match and it was like 80 percent of men said yes (laughs) and most of them are wrong (laughs) like you would not be able to do that because she is better at playing tennis than you are there's a film isn't there i can't remember what it's called the battle of the sexes yeah but that um, that's between premise that's between high level that's billy jean king and some other fellow who i can't remember who had played but who is actually a tennis player right like so your average sort of punter off the street is not going to be able to return a serve at 185 kilometers an hour from Serena Williams anyway so this fella and this is a dad who's got his kids there at the at the um, science works and he's decided to race the Kathy Freeman and he loses to Kathy Freeman a few times and he gets so angry because he still thinks that he can beat Kathy Freeman that he absolutely charges down this this 20 meter straight or whatever it is loses his footing at the end and cannons into a wall and put and goes head first through a fucking wall <laughs> in science work badly injuring himself like coming away with shoulder and neck injuries because he's literally just plowed head for, he's tried to run so fast that he hasn't given himself any time to stop and he's gone like head and shoulders not the dandruff stuff but like just <laughs> we probably looked like it when he came out with the plaster dust and the tweety birds flying around his head but he's literally plowed head first through an entire wall <laughs> and then tried to sue science works <laughs> for having a dangerous exhibit <laughs> there was a wonderful brown cardigan video this week or last weekend when rugby league returned and this is like pretty much every video involves blokes who've done loads of cocaine talking about rugby league then doing shit such as <laughs> running into trees and shoulder charging them and knocking themselves out knocking over a-frames and taking them out running into each other it's just like it's, just, it's an advertisement for why you should not partake in the practice of uh, binging on cocaine yes um and or just a large amount of plaster dust like this yes. guy did and so and the the court transcripts are fucking hilarious because he's there with i think two or three youngish children like under 10 year olds and the example that he's setting for them is i am so angry at being beaten by a woman who actually did this 15 <laughs> years earlier that i'm going to badly injure myself and then blame other people for my own stupidity. Brilliant. It is one of the most incredible human feats, I think, that we've ever seen. You used to have, at, at, um, and not at ScienceWorks, but at the, the original iteration of the... Um, this, it was called, I think, the, the Australian Sports Museum or something like that before the Hall of Fame took over there and all the rest of it, where you could replicate the putt that Norman sank to win mm. the 86 British Open or the Open Championship that year. I'm pretty sure that was at... Um, St Andrews. Anyway, and that, that was always the thrill for my brother and I. We'd go there and we'd try and land this putt and celebrate with Greg Norman mm. and all the rest. Don't know whether I celebrate with Greg Norman these days, to be fair. No, maybe not. Maybe don't go out on the boat <laughs> where, like, you know, some Saudi prince can drop you off yeah. the side with a washing machine attached to your ankles. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. None of that continental stuff. If, hard and fast. If, if somebody could VR it so that you could, like, face the gadding ball in virtual reality, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Would, that would I think sell. they probably could, you know. Mm. Um, Get on it. Yeah, if anyone can develop a bowling machine that can replicate the the shame worn ball, well, we'll buy yeah. shares in it from the final word. Yeah, with absolutely. the limited surplus money we have. Now, so I've gone off track here because I have not actually 
started this answer. That's fine. Which started with the Australian Sports Museum at the MCG. And mm-hmm. so I thought this was a weird way for Brendan to describe the MCG, a very well-known ground, as being a future home for the <laughs> yeah. Hall of Fame. Yeah, it, it's, the, it's the home of the Hall of Fame, yeah. the MCG. Sure. People are always saying that. Famously. So I did look up some tour games that happened at the MCG involving sports betting enthusiasts, and I was thinking <laughs> that the, the, the time frame's probably going to be early to mid-90s, I'm guessing. That's, that's what I'd think Brendan's vintage might be for a teenage attendance at one of these games. Salim Malik did play a tour game there against the Victorians did with Wasim Akram and Was the that, team. what, 1994, 95? No, no, 95. 92, this oh, one. Um, and there, there's another one in 95, but Salim Malik Dude, doesn't trying to get play. the right series there. Which was that? That was, for some Maybe reason, I can't remember Cup. that. 91. Yeah, it must have been a... Because Pakistan didn't come to Australia for quite a long time until 95 for Test Cricket. Anyway, it's all good. I'm pretty sure it was a first-class match. I don't have the scorecard up anymore, but I think it was a first-class game because I'm pretty sure there were two innings. The Hall of Fame opened in 96, so they could have been a future Hall of Fame as things, but but I'm pretty sure Pakistan, they were nine wickets down. I think they hung on for a draw by one wicket, which would have been unlikely if Salim Malik had any action going on on that one. The ICC Hall of Fame is in Dubai. I doubt that as a teenager, Brendan was watching tour games in Dubai. Why is it there? Well, that's not a place for a Hall of Fame. Famous home of cricket, Dubai. So I I was perplexed by this. I'd gone through all the MCG stuff. I couldn't find it. And then belatedly, belatedly realised in Bowral, the museum gives its full name as the Bradman Museum and International Cricket Hall of Fame. There we go. I was there with um, with Winnie, um, having well, she was probably just walking, but laying around, crawling around all of the all the floors in there a couple of years ago. So that's cool. I'm I'm glad we're back at Barrel. So at the Bradman Oval, they used to for a while uh, roll out a Bradman Eleven. Yep. To play touring sides, mostly fifty over stuff. They had South African Elevens, England Elevens, Zimbabwe Eleven, and New Zealand Eleven. They'd usually play these games in January. I assume they were warm ups for the Tri Series. They, they were. Used to play. They used to use the Bradman. 11 is yeah, you're spot on as, as a warm-up for when they started their tri-series efforts so and you mentioned Dion Nash earlier there's a game in 2002 in which Dion Nash gets promoted to number five and makes 72 from 59 balls for New Good Zealand on. as they made 392 but our game involves the South Africans January 1998 uh, none of them have been busted yet but Hansi Cronier is the captain of this team sports betting enthusiast above all and Herschel Gibbs his patsy is opening the batting and making 131, mind you. Adam Barker makes 57. Century opening stand. That's the foundation for a big score of 288. Very good South African team. Daryl Cullinan's in there. Jonty Rhodes, Sean Pollock, Brian McMillan, Mark Boucher, Lance Klusner. The Australians have Martin Love and Mark Taylor opening the mm-hmm. batting. They've got Stuart McGill in their team. They've got Anthony Stewart, hat-trick taker, in their team. They've got Shane Lee, who's also, when we talked about him on the previous episode... We did. Missing a test match in 97 in yep. favour of Sean Young, who got the, got the nod. Got the nod. Um, and also one of those cricketers whose names is also the first names of another couple who are involved in cricket, uh, Shane Watson and Lee Furlong. Very good. Make Shane Lee. Now, I wonder whether they discussed that before. I hope so. I hope it's come up at, hope it's at some point. So they're the other internationals and then there are some, some other lower profile players in that Bradman 11. Makai Rantini is playing. He gets Mark Taylor out for 32 and everything slides away thanks to four wickets to left arm spinner Paul Adams, four for 28. How did the South Africans know that slow bowling would be the key on this particular surface because the South Africans got bowled out. They were all out from the last ball. The last two wickets to fall are Adams and Antini. They are both caught 
off the very gentle efforts through the air of a man who ended his career with one test wicket, Mark Taylor, who finished bowling one over and took two for three. Oh. Our number is 203, and that, Brendan, is your nerd pledge. Fabulous. I know that Tubby... Now, which one is it? Was it the test wicket that bounced twice for Tubby before they changed the law? Was it a PM's 11 wicket, or was it maybe one of these? I know there is a wicket that Mark Taylor took mm. where it quite obviously bounces twice, so... Since the law update, I can't remember. He only took one. So if there was one, it must have been it. Yeah, but there was there was a PM's 11 wicket that oh, wouldn't come up yeah. in your search. Yeah. There was the test wicket in Pakistan in, 2000, uh, in 1994 where Michael Slater also got in the book in, I can't remember which of the three tests it was, but probably Lahore. Mm. No, it wouldn't have been Lahore because Lahore was the, the famous finish. It was, um, it was somewhere Pindy. else. Raul Pindi. Where yeah, it was Taylor a road. got his. Right, yeah. So on that basis... Yes, I don't know. Tell me. Find us. Find find the YouTube video of Mark Taylor bowling someone bouncing twice. It might have been at Barrel. It may just have been at Barrel. But either way, I'm glad you were able to sort of unstitch that because yes, when we were looking at Hall of Fames and so on, and that Barrel, I just got to say that if you have never been there, it's an amazing um, place. A lot of uh, a lot of money got tipped into it um, mm. during the Howard government. We started there, so we'll go back there again. It, they've done a, just just a great job. My great mate Jack Smith grew up in Barrow and has told me about it for years and um, I went with him uh, and our two daughters um, like when they were little to go back and, and see it. But it is like, it's a pretty hefty admission fee. I'm not going mm. to lie. You, it sets you back more than a sandwich and a milkshake. But once you're in there, you, you really take in a lot of cricket history, not just Bradman, far from it. It's, mm. a, it's a broader collection than that. Well, I'll be heading up there at the end of April to Barrow. Um, oh, good. Because uh, our Jody Hicks correspondent, John O'Halen, and I are going to be umpiring a game. So um, Andrew Denton has a, an annual when possible game that he organises, which is an artists versus lawyers oh. game. He's always, um, uh, he's always held the opinion that you know, lawyers should be beaten by artists <laughs> as often as possible. Right. Um, and that's been a tradition for a long time now, the artists versus the lawyers involved. You know, ben Quilty's involved, I yep. think, and a bunch of other um, cricket enthusiasts. So, so Jono and I are going to be officiating that match at this, the end of April. How did, the, I mean, back it up here for a minute, did, did Andrew Denton get in touch with Jono who got you in? So he, yeah, so he's, so Jono's been umpiring for quite a while now. Um, yeah. He's been involved through, I'm not sure what avenue um, it is, and, and I've done some work with Andrew Denton on creative projects before on a, a magazine I used to work for called Going Down Swinging. Oh, yeah, used yeah. to do creative, artistic kind of stuff. So we, um, we did a project with Andrew Denton a few years oh. ago, which you can probably still find if you look on the Going Down Swinging website. So, yeah, so it all just fitted together and it seemed like a fun thing to do. I mean, first they suggested I should play and I said, no, nah, I don't think I'm going to be at the required standard, but I can tell you if you're out or not. I got a great photo from Jono over the weekend on WhatsApp. His sister-in-law, Joe Halen's a friend of mine who I used to work with, is a shadow minister in the New South Wales um, Labor opposition at the moment, and she launched her campaign in the grandstand of a district cricket game. Mm -hmm. um, so the, all the... Joe Halen t-shirts were there. She shares an electorate with the bloke who's um, here tomorrow, the Prime Minister. I think she's the member for Marrickville, actually. Anyway, wh whichever the electorate it is, it's, it's in that sort of part of inner Western Sydney. And, um, and yeah, Jono sent me this great photo. Imagine that launching. And Joe's a cricket nut as well, I should add. But, yeah, in the grandstand there. So that was pretty cool. Well, if you want to come to Barrel and watch a cricket match, it's... Oh, it's at the end of April. I can't remember the exact Hope date, but I'm like sure that. you end can find April, it. End of April in that part of it'll be. I'd be. It's a double jumper. Yeah, it's a double jumper in that part of New South Wales in the end of April. Don't under club, Jeff. Okay, that's my advice. All right, all right. I'll Having wait. lived in Canberra, which isn't you know, 
a long, long way from there. Um, by you normally get, um, you know, it's going to be a cold winter in Canberra if you have the if your windscreen's freezing over before Anzac Day, and it usually is. Mm, okay. All right. Well, uh, I'll do the old um, Alim Dar and wear the the big windbreaker and just yep. wrap myself up like a tail. Uh, can you? Uh, I'm, I'm not. I don't mean to sound patronising, but do you know what you're doing? Mm. It's not easy to umpire. Oh yeah. Have you have you done the um, have you done a bit of online sort of, you know that might, you might be well served doing like a little online course. Maybe you should get your badge. Now now we're talking. Why yeah. don't you get your badge? Why don't you get Brian Arcane, yeah. who is coming out to umpire in Essex this summer? He's looking for a bed to crash in. If anyone in Essex wants to put Brian, great man, patron of ours up when he does grade games yep. in Essex for I think he's doing it for a month in June or July yep. or something like that he, I've been involved in some mm. correspondence with, with him as he's been going on this journey because as we discussed with him on the show he's um, been officiating at the top level yep. of American cricket and, and if you need a contribution you know if, say if Brian's staying with you and you need him to chip in domestically he can make decisions incredibly well <laughs> say, say you're at the supermarket say you're checking out and say your kid starts screaming for a Mars bar and then Brian can say after the 15 seconds of elapsed, no appeal will be allowed. Exactly. You know, there are many ways that an umpire can help out at home. And, he, and he's a, just a lovely man. He'd be a great housemate, if not for the fact that I live a long, long way from Essex. I'd happily put him up. But no, um, if anyone is out there, we should use the platform for that. But he, I'm sure, could put you on one of those quick umpiring online. Maybe you should get your badges before April. Yeah. I like the idea of this. Okay. All right. Well, I've umpired a lot in... Um you know, in, in, in yeah. fun cricket. Sure, sure, sure. Um, this so might I... require an extra level of, you know, this feels like the kind of game where the lawyers might know the, the laws a wee bit. That is their craft after all. Yeah, yeah. Everyone thinks they know the laws of cricket. But, but no one really does. No, no one really <laughs> do. It's things that we've learned. I've got a little confirmation I want to throw okay. in here as well because you asked James to get back to you uh, promptly if he wanted to correct your Shane Warne answer. And, well, he said the answer was great and fine. The reason it was $2.80 is because two for 80 is what England were after Mike Gatting oh. got out. In Manchester. There it is. Mm. There it is. Well, in a way, I'm glad we went in a different direction because I think we've told the getting ball story yes. enough. But oh no, he, he didn't want that good. story. He just wanted that to be a that shame, shame worn number. Yeah, that's and and as we discussed on on story time on 25, it was the anniversary of Warney's death when we were mm. recording. So it all it all ties together well. So thanks for that, James. Right. I think that's it. That's story time 126. We've done it. We have uh, revisits. Um, I know I said this last week, but um, we have got more than 20 in the queue now to do and. Uh, just as many confirmations. So that, that show, which is going to happen, there was no point. Just, we realised there was no point us no doing There's no point it. worrying about when it's going to happen. It's going to happen when it's going to happen. It's going to happen when it's going to happen. There's no point. When we're back remotely doing these things and, and, and aren't um, racing to deadlines at, at international cricket venues and all the rest. Indeed. Right. That is enough from us. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins, uh, plenty more shows coming up, all of the different varieties. But you know that by now. You know what you like and you know what you don't. And what you like is story time if you're hearing the end of this bit of story time. There'll be more coming. Sorry if I ran into empty just so you know what I meant here. I had to go.